Dave Braben and Ian Bell started out wanting to make a 3D space adventure game the likes of which no one had ever seen. And in the end, they accomplished this, but not for the reasons you may expect. Their game, Elite, became the first open-ended, open-world game in video game history, laying the groundwork for all open-ended games, all open-world games, all persistent online worlds that we now have come to love. But how did they achieve this, and why? Well, that's what we'll be covering today, so stick around and join us as we learn all about Elite and the people who made it on today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello, and welcome to the 108th episode of our Video Game Nostalgia Podcast. Each week, we tell you the story about one game relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week, we are looking back at Elite, originally released for the BBC Micro, and Acorn Electron Computers in September of 1984. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is a swashbuckling pirate in this galaxy and beyond. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what's it like out there? Well, Dave, I'll tell you, it ain't a lot of space. <laughs> but You're out is. here getting shot at, getting chased. You know, you'd think with all that space, you wouldn't be able to be found, but no, they're out there watching for you. But you're trying to take from them. They're going to watch out for you. No, I mean the ones who are chasing. Oh. Yeah, the bounty hunters in the law. Yeah, the bounty hunters. It's the best part. So what are we playing? Well, Dave, this week has seen some Rocket League, some RuneScape, a little bit of Ultimate Fishing Simulator, and an attempt at our game of the week. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, you you definitely did try to play the game of our week. <laughs> yes, I did, but we'll get more into that later. What about yourself, Dave? Uh, what have you been playing this week? Rocket League, Autica. Um, I also played some of Elite. And I don't think there's anything else on the list this week. It's been a pretty mute week for me. So Elite, I I guess I would I, I'm going to start out with the fact that I know that uh, me and you were strangers to this game, but not the series by any stretch of the imagination. That is correct. I have played Elite Dangerous quite a bit off myself. Definitely. So you are a fan of Elite Dangerous. I know that. You've put countless hours into it. You've tried to get me to play with you quite a bit. Yeah, that I did. Not too successfully either. Uh, you know, no. No, you haven't. I should really rethink that, though. I, I don't know. I, I really enjoy space simulators, and this is the granddaddy of them all. So. Indeed it is. But, well, Elite Dangerous. Elite itself, well. It's the granddaddy. I guess. We'll let you uh, we'll talk. Let you talk more about it. Oh, and talk I shall, because that's what I do. That's that's what I do. Yeah, unfortunately so. <laughs> well, for Christmas of 1981, David Braben was given an Acorn Atom computer by his parents. He I'm sorry, a what? An Acorn Atom computer. Is that like a brand? Yes. One that was mostly British. One that was almost exclusively British. Is that like supposed to be the, the starting of Apple because it came from an acorn? Oh, that's a good one. Oh, um, I mean, granted, acorns make oak trees, but, you know, y yeah, maybe. but I, I, I see I see what you did there. Um, mm. I definitely see what you did there. No, the um, <clears throat> acorn made acorn computers was a British was a British computer company uh, that was out of Cambridge and they were around the atom was around from like 80 to 82. And then it was replaced by the BBC micro, 
which was probably one of the most I mean, that was that was a really popular computer at the time. Yeah, I mean, that when when we were getting our, our stuff started with the Ataris and the Amigas of the world, because we talk about those so much over over across the pond, so to speak, they were getting their start with the uh, the BBC Micro. So, yeah, can't say that that's a familiar name to me either, Dave. No, no, it's it's not going to be. Uh, it was definitely a, a British. Uh, it's definitely a British PC company. This was early '80s. I mean, Windows and you know, Windows was not even a thing yet, and Apple was just some dude in a garage. Um, and and you gotta understand too, like when we talk about these games, they we graphics. Like we think of computers nowadays, and everything is so graphical and so user intuitive and we have mice and we have icons and we have this and we have that and we didn't have graphic a graphical interface for a computer until apple came out with it in the mid to late 80s with lisa i think it was so i mean this is this is pre any concept of modern computer modern computing this is you have a keyboard and you have a tape drive and you write the programs on the computer type deal you know, um, this is early on, but, um, but he was, David Braben was, he was a, 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 you know, we would call him a geek nowadays. This is before that was a thing. And he was a computer enthusiast and he asked his parents to purchase him the parts to build his own computer, which was an acorn atom. So he put his little acorn atom together, you know, it's a little skeleton keyboard tape recorder, like I said, and he threw himself into learning how to make it work for him. Um, and that was kind of the thing. That was the, that was what was fun for him. You know, Braben wanted to program because he loved the simplicity and the what it allowed him to have. You know, he was 18 years old at the time. 18 year old, you're at that weird part in your life where like you don't necessarily know what you want to do. You don't have a lot of control over your life, but you're an adult. So on, so on and so forth, you know, and so. In his view, programming was a way for him to tell something something what to do and to have his instructions follow to the letter. So so he gets this acorn Adam and he's finishing up school. He's in his A-levels and he's getting ready to go to college to Cambridge uh, and Jesus College. <laughs> I'm sorry, huh? Yeah. So one of the one of the colleges in Cambridge is called Jesus College. That happens to be where him and him and the other writer of uh, of Elite met. I just like Jesus College. So I I have never heard that before. That's new to me. Well, okay. so it's not. So you went to Central, but there were little schools, right? There was like like an honors school and like a like the College of Liberal Arts type deal. Like, was it divvied up like that? Yeah, yeah, science and engineering. Yeah, and, so yeah, such okay. so, so like that's essentially one what, of Jesus. Well, that, that's just what it's called, Jesus College. Maybe it's Jesus. I don't know. It's Jesus College. So, hmm. uh, anyway, so he's he's going to Cambridge, and you know he's finishing up his A levels, which is like AP to us kind of deal, and um, and with his spare time, he's just you know learning as much programming as he could with what he had. This is so early. It's not like there's even experts they can go to, you know, Ian Bell was also headed to Cambridge in the fall. He was a year older than David Braben. He was in the midst of a gap year. He had already finished school and uh, he was going, he was going to Cambridge next fall and he spent that gap year working at his dad's office. Now his dad worked for the Malaysian rubber producers research association. That's a mouthful. And in the daytime, Ian Bell was their guy that would manage kind of the computer geek that would manage their computer that controlled all the testing they were doing in the, in this research laboratory. But at nighttime though, after everyone left, the computer was his domain and video games became his thing. You know, his earliest memory on this, this computer was playing space invaders. And the more games he played, the more he found himself wanting to make games of his own, wanting to make something different. His first attempt was a computer version of the game Othello. And as he was working on Othello, he was teaching himself how to do it. So it was he was learning how to program 
um, you know, and and again, there's no experts here, so they're just kind of making it up as they go along. Both of them were making it up as they go along, you know, um, and they both kind of came to the same conclusion at the same time. You know, they had been programming for a couple months, and in separate revelations, they stumbled across um, Braben, for example, stumbled across the Acorn Adams official game pack. And he was disappointed to find that many of his own games were better than what was what was actually in the official game pack. And this separately motivated the two of them to kind of follow this path because they knew they had what it took. You know, if if they were able to sell these games and they knew they were at home making better games, then it should go to follow that they should be able to sell their own better games. You know what I mean? Yeah, that definitely makes sense to me, Dave. So... So they both go off to school. They meet at Jesus uh, College, Cambridge, and quickly become friends. At the time, Bell was working on developing a game called Free Wall, Free Fall, rather, not Free Wall or Free Bird, whichever way you look at it. Now, anyway, here's Wonderwall. <laughs> oh, now Free Fall was a beat-em-up game. Uh, Bell claims that historically it's the first beat-em-up. That's up for debate. But uh, Freefall is basically a game. You're a humanoid figure, and you're working your way through a space station, punching and kicking aliens. On the other hand, Braben had just started working on a project called Fighter, that another space-type game that includes similar elements. So the two, as friends, got together. They compared notes. And they decided that the two projects were similar enough that they should collaborate. So they're kind of flirting around with it, you know, tossing ideas around and a year of school passes. And in the summer after the first year, they decide to kind of sit down and, and cement this project, like lay the groundwork for it. And what they decided is that they wanted to embark on a project to create a 3D gaff, gra- gaffic, but a gaff a 3D graphic environment as an arcade game. Now, I know we say this with a bunch of games at this time, but that wasn't the thing. You know, all games at the time were 2D. This is the early 80s. We're coming out of the Pac-Mans and the Space Invaders and the Donkey Kongs of the world. 3D was just not a thing. This is by no means the first 3D game, but it's definitely early enough that for a lot of people, it may have ended up being their first 3D game that they ever saw. Um, but it just wasn't something that was done. So they wanted to, they wanted to create their they wanted to create a 3D game. Um, and right from the get go, being them, their personalities, their interests, they knew that they wanted to make an adventure game set in space. And so they sat down to lay the groundwork for, uh, you know, the game that we're talking about today, Elite. Um, and really... It started as an exercise to design space combat in three dimensions, but it quickly became a much larger project. So it it unraveled that way, right? So they start out with space combat. And so the question becomes, okay, so who are we fighting? And initially they're like, okay, so let's make it into, like you're fighting against a space Navy. Can we, can we, can we make a whole fleet full of ships that you have to take down? Well, technologically they were limited by memory at the time so no you know it's probably a little unrealistic to code an entire space fleet so what's smaller okay space pirates cool so we're fighting space pirates where can we take a break well in space you can take a break at space stations cool well when you pop into a space station wouldn't it be cool if you had to dock a dock at the space station kind of like how they have that they have that docking sequence in 2001 a space odyssey so You've got fighting and you've got docking, but why are you fighting and you docking? What are you working towards? And so the idea gets proposed that you should be allowed to upgrade the weapons on your ship so that it's not the same game the whole time. You're just not in the same ship with the same weapons doing the same thing. So now we're sitting there and we have a fighting game. You're fighting pirates. You can fight pirates to buy different guns, but then how do you get said guns? Well, buying it came to mind. So when you buy something, you have to add money to the game. And if you add money to the game, you have to er add ways to earn money. So they decided that they were going to earn it by collecting bounties on space pirates and then using it to upgrade weapons. 
but money is sometimes more complex than that. So what are some other ways that we can use money? Hauling cargo came to mind. So then they had to code ships that didn't just have weapons, but that had cargo hoods now. And hauling implies trading. And so along with trading comes more places to trade and things to trade and prices that fluctuate along with markets that fluctuate and so on and so forth. So as they sat down and kind of decided how they want to do this, it just grew and grew and grew. Um, and they brought in all their inspiration. They brought in inspiration from all sorts of places. You know, I already referenced the fact that the docking sequence, they got the idea from a space odyssey. They took elements from star Wars. They took elements from hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. They were fans and you'll find bits of uh, sci-fi authors, Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov and Orson Scott card. Um, these were Ian Bell and David Braben. They were sci-fi nerds making their own sci-fi adventure. As they rolled out all these ideas, they were determined to let the player guide the experience. You know, they were against typical game conventions. They perceived most games as having presented the player with a set of demands or rather a series of hoops that you had to jump through. And when you did jump through the, these hoops, your score went up. So it was, it was, you know, basically you being told what to do. And at the heart of everything, they really wanted to make a player's story. a One where you were free to do whatever you wanted in this big, vast space that they had envisioned. And their notion as it rolled out was that someone... And Rob, this is so funny to think of nowadays... It's so funny to think of nowadays. They were revolutionary in the fact that they envisioned sessions lasting for hours. Um, because at the time, most games you played in arcades for a quarter that was worth 10 minutes of your time. But that's not the idea they had in mind. They wanted someone to sit in front of the computer and get lost in space for hours. And it's so funny to think about that as a novel concept because that's the norm nowadays for most of us. Yeah, I would definitely say that's pretty normal nowadays. Yeah, it, it's just really funny to think of. It was obvious that the scope of what they wanted to do was unlike anything else out there because there wasn't anything like it. And so with all these ideas in mind, with the, the, the it all designed out with the groundwork in place, they decided that before they were going to commit some real time and effort into the project, that they wanted to reach out to see that to see if anyone at all actually wanted to pay them for it. Um, so they started by reaching out to companies they had already done business with or were doing business for. For instance, Freefall was being done for I Am Thorn. So Braben, our fighter was being done for Thorn. So Braben reaches out to them, an interview set up with them. And they go to this interview. They sit down with a bunch of guys in shiny suits. Braben recalls. And they smiled, but it was really obvious that they didn't seem to understand what these guys were were trying to convey to them. And how oblivious they were was even more obvious when they received the rejection letter from the company. Um, Raven later recalled the letter that they got. Uh, and in the letter, basically, the company told the guys that the game needed three lives. It needed to play through in no more than 10 minutes that users won't be prepared to play for night after night to get anywhere, that people won't understand the trading system, that people don't understand 3D, and that their idea for the technology is very impressive, but that their notion of the game and space is not very colorful, colorful and won't be very popular. That's a big oof. I mean, like, everything that they want to design the game on, these guys are like, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure that uh, that'll come back to kick him in the butt. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Ian Bell, on the other hand, had been working with Acorn Soft uh, with Free Fall and so on and so forth. And in Acor Acorn Soft, they found kindred spirits. The company's chief editor was Chris Jordan, and he recalled seeing the demo for the first time, which the demonstration they brought to them was a little bit of combat and a docking sequence. And Jordan said that, you know, he, he, he quote, and I quote, I was knocked dead by the appearance. It was remarkable simply because it was real time 3D graphics. 
course, we were programmers, so we knew how hard it was. And what really impressed us wasn't was was that this wasn't just smart programming; it was smart math. Someone had gone hell to leather making the absolute best that was possible. I had to look that up. Hell to leather. Yeah, that is a pretty odd term in my book. Never heard it. Yeah, it means quickly and like just quickly and definitively, basically. I've never heard someone use the phrase hell to leather held to leather for. So Yeah, no, nope. That, that seems like a southern thing too, so if you haven't heard it, nope. I don't know. I'm guessing it's British. So Oh, you know what? That makes a lot hell of a lot more sense actually being that this is, you know, yeah, yeah coming from there. Yep. So the team at Acorn Soft which they were a bunch of coders. They were programmers themselves. They listened as the boys explained their vision. They wanted to expand this idea to include more destinations, to include training and so on and so forth. Acornsoft was impressed, but they had their doubts. They were hesitant committing to the project. They understood the scope of the project and the ambition of Braben and Bell. But Acornsoft produced games with teams of 10, if not hundreds of people. And here they have two young programmers basically pitching them that they could finish a project that's unlike anything that the company or anyone really has ever done. You got to think, I know we talked about this before, Rob, but at this time, there's nowhere to go. There's no one to talk to. There's nothing to do. You know, we joke around nowadays. I think I talked recently about how like, the Stanley parable when those guys wanted to learn how to use a uh, valve, you know, w- wanted to use that environment. They got aligned to like forums and, and websites and, and basically, you know, learned how to code themselves. But here there wasn't that stuff didn't exist, you know? So they were basically Acornsoft was faced with the decision of investing in these two guys who are saying, Hey, we can do something that no one had ever done before. And that end of end of sentence, there was no, no one else that could show it to them. They were going to invent something, you know? I mean, that is pretty awesome. It is. And it's a concept. I, I think that I, I, I get real bummed out sometimes. I know I say this, but I don't know what the next thing is for us to be able to experience stuff like that. Uh, anyway, it'll be smell vision. Just you wait. Okay. The ability to smell what you have in games. I don't want to smell my like multiplayer games. If you can smell who you're playing against, I really don't want to do that. No, I I think that's going to be it. That'll be the next next game. Next gen tech. God, you know, we have a habit of having bad hygiene. That would be the worst thing ever. That might actually be good. Think about it. If you're multiplaying with smell-o-vision and other people have to smell you, even when you're online, then you're going to have other people posting up your shitty hygiene. Maybe that would encourage better hygiene in the gaming community. Maybe. Just maybe. It could make a push towards cleaner gamers. Or you're just going to shit all over everyone and choke us out as a winning strategy. Well, thanks for giving it away so early, Dave. (laughs) There goes my plan. Oh, man. So Acorn Soft had their hesitation, but they were doing really well with 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 everything else. They were a company that had, you know, Acorn was the Atom and the BBC Micro was on the way. So they were really breaking in the money with hardware and Acorn Soft. They were doing well with software. They had the money. They had the resources. So realistically, realistically, telling these two kids that, we're going to give you the time and the support to make this weird game. Wasn't that risky. So they gave it the green light. And basically the two guys, Bell and Braben sat down for the next 18 months to work on elite. So now elite was really amazing from the technology standpoint. It is, it's like he said, it, it wasn't just that they were great programmers. It's that they were great at math and really cool. I posted on our show notes at www.memorycardlane.com. But if you go to Ian Bell's website, he actually has a whole section that's called math for programmers. And in these old programming languages, you, you literally had to do the math to create. I mean, for wireframe, you had to do the math to tell the game where to draw a line. You know, you draw a line from this point to this point and a line from this point to this point and so on and so forth. And you have to tell it if you're moving in space, if you press the button, how far it's going to move as a mathematical equation. So uh, these guys were geniuses at math 
and they posted a lot of the formulas that they used. At least Ian did. Ian posted a lot of stuff, and we'll talk about that. But among the parts of his website, there's a whole math for programming, and it's so such a cool resource if you're into that kind of stuff. Woo! Math. Oh my god, I hate math. <laughs> I'm sure many agree, Dave. So originally the guys wanted to create about 10 handcrafted solar systems, each with its own painstaking set of details. You know, they wanted to create their own foliage and their own people and their own governments and cultures and trading systems and so on and so forth. But it really became clear to them as they kind of thought about this, that this was going to take up much, much more memory that they had available to them. Um, so like I said, they were pretty genius at what they do. So what they ended up doing is they, they created, they coded it to create its own universe. They wanted the machine to make up the universe as it went along. So they created procedurally generated galaxies. This is probably the earliest game that we know of that has procedural generation to this scope. You know, each player was going to have a unique experiences. They, let math take the helm, actually. They used the Fibonacci sequence, and they used it to generate different sequences of numbers. And some of the numbers, for instance, the computer would generate random strings of numbers, and these numbers would reference things. So some numbers would control the physical specs of the system, such as the size, location, or the number of planets in the system. Some of the numbers would determine... They basically had a list of adjectives for each thing. So... You could control local politics or local culture. So, for instance, one example is given that they had uh, cannibal as one of the adjectives and another was a um, arts degree holders. So someone found a planet full of cannibal arts degree holders. There was just the game just made galaxies for themselves. You know, Braven and Bell really liked this. They thought them they saw themselves as gardeners that were planting the seeds of of a gaming experience for for their players and letting it grow. So they started calling all these numbers for the galaxy seeds. It's likely the first time we've ever heard that phrase used in gaming. Now, if you play a game that randomizes things, you can generate seeds. I know, Rob, we do that with oxygen not included. And as they worked through it, they wanted to have a crazy amount of these galaxies for gamers to explore. Their idea was two to the power of 48, which would have been 282 million million galaxies. But realistically, Acorn Soft saw this as too much, put their foot down. They they thought it was too complex and that it was going to expose, more so expose, the, the way they generated the galaxies. Um, so they put their foot down and asked them to pare it down a little bit. And what they came up with was what the game has. There are eight galaxies, each that have 256 stars in them. So, but Acorn Soft, to their credit, saw procedural generation for what it was. It was a very unique design feature of the game that they could market to the masses. Because of the randomized nature of procedural generation, they advertised they sold very hard the fact that there was always the possibility for gamers to find stuff in a game in the game that its authors couldn't even imagine which is true whenever you have procedural generation you always have weird stuff in it and and you can't even plan for everything there's a funny thing so bell and braben one of the things they did try to do was when they made the formula they tried to put a profanity uh, filter on so weird stuff couldn't come up like swear like planets with swear words you know because when they first did it they had a planet called arse and so they had to delete that entire galaxy make sure it didn't it didn't uh it didn't ship with the game couldn't be regenerated well apparently there's an anecdote within like the first month of the game coming out someone found another planet arse that they missed so nice yes so procedure generation was a hard selling point Bell and Braben continued to work on the game. They tweaked it. They improved it. And then towards summer of 84, Acorn Soft said, hey, guys, enough is enough. We think you have a solid game. Let's do this. Um, Acorn Soft was really supportive. They thought they knew they had something special. Um, so they rolled with it. They packaged Elite in a larger box than any other game was packaged in at the time. 
they stuffed it full of other goodies. You had like a pilot license. You had a novella. This game actually came with a little novella that told some backstory to the game, kind of giving people the, the foundation for a story if they wanted to make it up as they went along. It's the first game ever to include any sort of novella or written material to that extent. Well, novella. There were stories and instruction manuals. This is the first one that had a novella. There was also a sepia postcard. Part of the game is you climb up in ranks until you're an elite. So you could turn this postcard back into Acorn Soft when you became an elite with proof and enter a competition. Um, and yeah, so they marketed it. They also decided to have a launch party. They you just games did not have launch parties at this time. So it's one of the earlier launch parties that we know of, too. And and it was it was a success. Um, I talked about the procedural generation, but I will tell you that there is one other awesome piece of technology that Elite did before anyone else. It's also the first home computer game that used wireframe 3D graphics with hidden line removal. So what I mean by that is when wireframe 3D graphics came on, you could see all the lines at one time. But when you use hidden line removal, when a line goes behind your point of view, it disappears. So it actually appears more 3D when you can't see through to behind, if that makes any sense at all. Sure, Dave, whatever you say. Okay. didn't sound like rambling. Yeah, I know. First home computer game to use wireframe 3D graphics. One of the earliest procedurally generated games. First game to have a novella. It was groundbreaking. And it was released to the world in September of 1984. Rob, you played Elite, or tried to play Elite at least. I sure did, Dave. What'd you think about it? Well, unfortunately, I only got to experience a very small amount of the game. Um, There was an issue with my download, although it being direct from Frontier, uh, where every time I would try to jump into hyperspace to a new planet, it would say planet not found and crash the game. But I got to try out the flying. I got to try out the trading uh, to some degree because I could buy items before trying to fly away and things. I uh, never did find another ship to, to fight, so I didn't get to try that. But I will say that it was probably revolutionary for its time. It was a little difficult to control, being I also have always mostly always played that game on joysticks, and I probably could have hooked them up, but I did not do so. So trying to play it with keyboard and mouse, the controls were a little confusing. Uh, if you didn't have the manual, it was very confusing. No tutorial of any kind. But again... That's why they had manuals back in the day. You read the manual and it all quickly made sense. I think that had I started playing that before Elite Dangerous, I really would have enjoyed it. But I got spoiled playing the refined polish version first. <laughs> yeah, you did. And Elite Dangerous is amazing. I God, I I still remember when I first got my VR headset. I made you watch me load into a spaceship. God, it's so cool in VR too. I played Elite way back when when it was ported to the NES because it was ported to the NES and it's a very it's a it's a different game on NES than it is here on the BBC Micro. You know, NES is a more powerful machine. It had color. Everything was a little more refined. I liked these games. Some of my favorite games back when we talked about it last week when we talked about the Bullfrog Collection. I just liked the business simulators and the Elite to me way back when was a trading game. And I just really like it. And I I was just saying that I don't know what we're going to, what we have next in store that's going to make us feel the same wow factor. But I'm always in awe for what these games are, or were rather, are being the, the historical portion of it. There wasn't anything like this when they made it. You know, there, there wasn't another space simulator with wire 3D graphics like this. And certainly nothing with the scope. This was amazing. This is amazing. You know, like I said, in a time when you just have arcade games where you pop a quarter and you play 10 minutes at a time, there was a game where you could sit hours and fight ships and, and upgrade your weapons. And you had a persistent universe that you could grow in. And that's just, that was super cool. Um, it was super cool. I liked Elite. I still like Elite. I'm with you though. I'm I'm glad I'm glad we now have Elite Dangerous. Elite Dangerous is is amazing, and I'm 
uh, always in awe of where series go. What did other people think about Elite, Rob? Well, Dave, we're going to kick it off with some critic reviews tonight and jumping right into it. In December of 1985, there was a review by Computer and Video Games that said that this is definitely a game that no one who owns a computer should be without. Take my advice, buy it, and you probably won't be seen for six months. Probably not, right? Six months, fair assessment. Yeah, I I would definitely say so. You know, you get lost in you get lost in space. Haha. <laughs> All right, fine. I'll give you that one. Damn it. Ah. Uh, Next up, from November of 1984, we have Personal Computer Games, where it was written that Elite is vast, complex, and very, very absorbing. I've got bulging red eyeballs from staying up into the early hours, but I don't care. I'm going to continue playing until I'm ranked Elite, or at least competent, or even average. When I heard bulging, I did not expect that to go the direction it went, I am going to lie. Well, Dave, that just shows the kind of mind you have. <laughs> okay. But they do finish by telling you, buy it. Yeah, well, people bought it. I would definitely say so. And last up for our critic reviews, we have a review set in 2014 from the Video Game Critic, who does have a lot to say about this, but I will keep it short and just say that they truly enjoyed the first 20 to 30 hours they put into the game. And frankly... That's more than enough for any gamer to feel they got their money's worth. A great game in its own right, but they just can't help but feel how close to perfection they are able to come had they only included more content or even an overall plot. Hmm. Overall plot. Definitely would add a lot more, but I don't think it would be quite the same game if it had a plot, you know? Well, I mean, they didn't want to, they didn't want to tell anyone how to play the game. No, of course they did not. But nowadays you see that you can make your own adventure and still have a plot to the game to some degree. That's true. I'll give you that. Last up for our critic reviews, Dave, we have October of 1984 by Popular Computing Weekly. They say that at the start of this game, the ship is docked with a space station orbiting the planet Lave. You're giving a full tank of fuel and 100 cash credits. Initially, you're rated as harmless, and your criminal record is clean. Having bought everything you need, you use the local galactic chart to choose a planet. Having picked a planet, you leave the space station. Your sole means of defense are three heat-seeking missiles and a laser. You use hyperspace drive to get to the planet you selected. On materializing, you find yourself within range of the planet. Your objective is now to reach the space station orbiting the planet. However, if you're carrying valuable cargo or have a price on your head, incredible three-dimensional battles usually ensue. The screen display of all this is rather neat. Most of the screen is given over to the view from your ship. This part of the screen is updated frequently, giving exceptionally smooth animation. Their only quibble with display is that planets are transparent which, quite frankly, makes them look more like bubbles. They finish out the review by saying that for the price, you get a disc or cassette, a flight manual, a small novelette of dubious use, and a literary standing, and a couple of reference cards summarizing the 51 command keys you can use. The whole thing is beautifully packaged in a high-gloss, low-tech cardboard box. I like uh, 51 command keys. Not too complex of a game. Uh, no, definitely not. I mean, you know, just 51. No big deal. But Dave, enough from the critics. I think it's time that we get into the people we love to hear from. Okay. And that would be our players. So first up, we have user ZZap from Moby Games, who asks, what's so special about Elite? Sitting hour after hour, day for day, in front of a computer, reading a book, drinking coffee, every now and then throwing a glance at the monitor to look for potential threats. Or the space station. Well, it's a little bit paradox. But I think in Elite, the repetitive gameplay adds to the immersion. You start out so inexperienced and poor and struggle to earn your first credits, cargo bay, beam laser. And while struggling, you learn how to handle your ship. And with time passing, suddenly you are a flying killing machine, shooting whole armies of pirates before they even leave their one-pixel state. 
and you feel rather cool doing so. Add in unrestricted freedom to do what you want, be it mining, piracy, trade, or whatever else, and you have one of the greatest all-time classics ever developed. Their only quibble is that after a long, long time, it really gets boring. I don't know about that. I, I guess, well, you know what? That cha- I'll change that. Any game gets boring after some time. Yeah, I definitely agree to that. Although with a short break, usually those games you get really hooked in are hard to get back out of once you start again. True enough. Righto, Dave. And next up, we have user Pofaze from Moby Games, who says that it was truly an entire universe on a single floppy disk. I remember me and my father playing this game for ages. He more than me. It took ages until we could afford a landing computer, relieving us of the dangerous task of docking that could get you killed if you weren't careful. And then some more ages until we could afford the military laser, and virtually infinite time until we had the rank of elite. But it was all so fun and exciting, and the special missions in between, usual trading, hunting, or special gadgets like the cloaking device. Ships that were described in the manual weren't in the game. And I wish so much that I could swap my Cobra MK3 against one of those hellish fast asps. However, all those glitches never really affected overall gameplay for them. They do say that you need endurance and patience. Prepare for frustration when you carry a lot of cargo to a dangerous zone, fight lots of pirates, only to crash against the Coriolis station because you didn't pay enough attention to the docking rectangle. It's hard, but it's also fair and rewarding. And last up for our user reviews, Dave, we have Clown Boss from Glitchwave, who says that Elite was a limited but stunning space exploration game with completely fluid 3D play. You have an overworld and a huge universe to indulge in. But really, your options on what to do are limited, when you mostly stick to trading things in between planets and shoot pirates who attack you. Buying addition makes life easier, but the primary objective of the game, reaching the elite rank, is only attainable after you destroy about 6,000 ships, which demands an impossible amount of dedication for one person. More fascinating today is a tech demo, than as a skeleton of a gameplay that somehow wasn't even updated with Elite Dangerous. I don't know if I'd say that the gameplay wasn't really up now. I guess the, the process of the game is the same, huh? At its core, I would say that it is, although they've definitely added a lot more, especially with the release of Odyssey. I mean, I don't spend all of my time just going around shooting pirates. I sometimes just pick people up and shuttle them to other planets. Or, you know, sometimes I just go around and walk on a planet's surface and drive the mar- the rover because I can. True statement. But again, at its core, if you if you want to reach the rank of elite, you do got to do a lot of stuff for other people. Some of it, very ruthless. You got to do a lot of stuff. So, Elite as a game itself was successful. It flew off the shelves. Sales of Elite, it was announced... Within months, the sales of Elite would reach 150,000, which was really impressive considering that there were only about 150,000 BBC micros in the world at that point. So for a brief moment, there was a one-to-one ratio on computer software for the BBC micro. Everyone who owned a BBC micro owned Elite. I'd say that's pretty successful for a game that didn't launch with it. Yeah, I definitely think so. Is there any other game in the world that's ever done that? I don't. No, I was thinking the same thing when I saw that statistic. When Braben and Bell had negotiated rights with Acornsoft, they had initially asked for a higher royalty rate than what Acornsoft could agree to. So instead of the higher royalty rate, they were given they were allowed to keep the rights to publish the game on other program uh, on other platforms rather. So when this game became super successful to all the BBC Micro people. Braben and Bell basically started a, they auctioned off the the rights for other platforms. And it was kind of a circus. It was like televised and they were brought on TV and uh, paraded around. People were following the news because there there started becoming a bidding war over who was going to acquire the rights to publish uh, Elite on other systems. One of the British telecoms won and this game was taken to other places 
it would find itself on the Apple II, the Commodore 64, the Amiga, the Atari ST. It was eventually made for IBM compatible PCs. And like I said, it, it had even found its way to the NES at some point. It was later ported to DOS with upgraded graphics. Uh, that version was coded entirely in assembly by Chris Sawyer, who we've talked about before on our Roller Coaster Tycoon episode, which you can find in our show notes going to our archives on memorycardlane.com. Elite in itself is an incredibly influential game in video game history, right? It's, for starters, we can easily give it credit for basically giving definition to space trading games. I think Star Trader was the first. So it's not the first space trading game, but it's definitely the one that like every single one designed itself off of after this, you know? I mean, I suppose you could put it that way, but technically then everything was also made after Star Trader, but, you know, it's semantics. Yeah. Pretty much any space flight simulation game after Elite was designed like Elite, so, you know, we have that. More so than anything, why this game ends up... I don't think Elite is very well known, but it constantly ends up higher in the list of influential games in gaming history. And the reason is, is because it was the first true open-ended, open-world game. It was designed in a way that there was no, nothing, nothing to do per se. You could go anywhere, you could do anything. The game was yours to make it however you wanted. It laid the groundwork for any game nowadays that's designed in a persistent world, which is pretty much the whole MMORPG genre. You know, games like EVE Online have have said that they took their inspiration from Elite. And you could argue that we wouldn't have blockbuster hits like WoW if Elite hadn't laid the framework for open-ended games, you know? What everyone did here was take a, a risk, right? It's like I said in the beginning, in a time when games were all played a quarter at a time, ten you know, in 10-minute increments, everyone basically gambled on a vision that you could make a game where people would want to sit in front of their computer for hours and play it and tell a story and progress and grow. And we learned firsthand that there were companies that just didn't understand that concept or didn't think it was going to be marketable and passed on this. And yet Acorn Soft took a gamble and now here we are to its credit. Uh, Rob and I had just talked about it in the beginning. The series has lived on. We got a sequel called Frontier Elite 2 in 93. Uh, Frontier First Encounters, which is Elite 3, came out in 95. And then a third sequel called Elite Dangerous, which is what we play nowadays, was a successful kick successfully kickstarted in 2012. I believe at the time it was the most successful Kickstarter ever. It's been surpassed, if I'm not mistaken. But they kickstarted the game and they released it in December of 2014. Rob, you're a fan. Yeah, honestly, uh, until just now, I did not realize that it was a Kickstarter game. No, I I had no idea. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. It was, it was, it was the like I said, most successful Kickstarter at the time. I think Star Citizen passed it up. The other space game that is, I don't, I don't even want to talk about Star Citizen. Yeah, we'll save that for an old episode, but again, didn't know about that one either. <laughs> so Elite Dangerous lives on. Came out in 2014. They've been updating it. Just last year, they released... Is it last year or this year that Odyssey came out, Rob? Oh, man. My timeline is so fucked. I believe that it was last year, but again... We just got a big update, uh, like a, a, a paid expansion. Uh, well, we just got a big update. But Odyssey was an expansion that came out recently where now you can actually walk on certain planets. Yes. Yep, absolutely. As opposed to just being able to drive a little rover around on them. Right. So pretty freaking cool. But And having played the original Elite, now you can definitely see that it gets a lot of that from there. I mean, obviously it's a continuation of it, and most games did take this stuff from elite but it's kind of cool to be able to have played the game at its root and seen how different it is back from the wireframe days and the bubble looking planets to i can actually walk on this freaking planet holy crap 
Well, look, so Elite was uh, eight galaxies procedurally generated, and Elite Dangerous is a, a realistic recreation of the Milky Way galaxy, star for star. No shit? No shit. That's how they designed it. I had no freaking clue. Look at all the stuff I'm learning about Elite Dangerous. God damn. <laughs> I just thought the game was really freaking fun. That's all. <laughs> no. Nope. No procedural generation now. Now we are an accurate recreation of the Milky Way. Anyway, Elite lives on to this day. Uh, and as so, it's one of the longest running video game franchises. You know, it got its start here in 84. There are only a handful that can say they started before then. We've covered most of them before, like the Pac-Man's Donkey Kong of the world. So they're, you know, they're, they're, it's on that list of, of video game franchises that have been around for, shoot, 38, 39 years, you know? Okay, so Elite and those who worked on it. Ian Bell. Ian Bell, after Elite, uh, worked on Frontier Elite 2, and then he moved on to other things. Uh, he didn't really ever get back into game development. He... At first, took his money, took some time off, practiced some Aikido, did a little bit of DJ work, forgot his DJ name, but he was a DJ in the rave scene for a while. When he settled back down, he went back into programming. He has done programming for Autodesk, which is AutoCAD. He was a senior senior program engineer for them. And he has dabbled in other programming. He's done. He says he did, did some work in AI, did some work in graphics. He does it as a hobby nowadays. I posted his website on the show notes at www.memorycardlane.com. He posted the source code for all these games. The source code for Freefall is on there. The source code for the original Elite is on there. I actually went back and downloaded the original NES Elite and threw it on my emulator on my computer just to remind myself of what it was like. Uh, he has all the versions, the original Acorn version, uh, BBC version, the Commodore version. You can download the source code for all of the versions off Ian Bell's website. It's kind of cool. But that's it. He hasn't done much with game development. David Braben, on the other hand, has stayed very involved with game development. In 93, he founded Frontier Developments. It is the leading U- UK gaming development company. Their projects, you're going to know a lot of their stuff. Uh, they they developed Roller, Co- Roller Coaster Tycoon 3, Lost Winds, Connectimals, Jurassic World Evolution, Zoo Tycoon, Planet Coaster, Planet Zoo, and Elite Dangerous. Braben himself has been a producer on many of those titles. And he's still credited as... C- he, he, still, he still works for Frontier Developments. He's, he's their CEO and founder. That's his official title. And in 2011, he was one of the developers that announced a prototype computer that was intended to simulate the teaching of basic computer science in schools. These developers would start a foundation to promote their efforts. And Braben was the co-founder and trustee of the Raspberry Pi Foundation. Huh. Holy damn. I know, right? (laughs) Learned something new today, right? I learned a lot of new today. God damn. So the Raspberry Pi is a little microcomputer. It's known very well to many of us electronic enthusiasts around the world. We use it for a lot of a lot of little computer projects. Uh, heck, you can make little emulator machines with a Raspberry Pi nowadays. You could literally put the entire Acorn, BBC, Amiga, Commodore, everything library on a Raspberry Pi stick and play it off of a little stick. That's how far we've come. Yep, pretty insane when you think about it. It's so cool. So yeah, I mean, my man David Braben is still uh, still doing it. I, I, all joking aside, I have played every single one of the games on that list of games that, you know, I mean, Frontiers and a little bit more, but that's their big stuff, and I've played every single one of those. Yeah, I haven't played all of them, but I have played quite a few. Well, I, they spent a lot of time in one of my favorite genres. Roller Coaster Tycoon, Planet Coaster, Planet Zoo, Zoo Tycoon, Jurassic World Evolution. That's my tycoon genre, you know? Oh, I'm absolutely with you. Those, with the exception of Planet Coaster and Zoo, uh, those are the ones that I played as well. I did a lot of tycoon playing. I just haven't gotten around to Coaster or Zoo. Those are awesome. Uh, those are, I mean, if, if you're more into the design element than the business element, they're not as good at the business side of things. But if you like making stuff... 
oh my god, Planet Coaster is the coolest flipping game for that. What you can make and what people come up with is just oh my god. There's so much like the customization that game is off the off the chain. It's amazing. Yeah, I ain't all that creative, so that might not be as good as that one. So I I like it and I struggle with it, but it's workshop enabled. So you could freaking go on and download these like rides, like 20 minute dark rides, because you can ride every ride you create in the game. And so part of the fun is just going on there and going through the workshop and downloading all these rides that people make and then just sitting there and going through their 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 rides. And when I say like you can customize like it's got pyrotechnics you can put on timers and animatronics you can put on timers so you can create ride rides, not just like a little cheesy roller coaster that you go up and down. Like these roller coasters can have like rings of fire and monsters that jump out of you and shit like that. Like it's a legit amusement park creator type game. Well, Disney might be able to use that as a recruiting tool. Uh, yep. Mm. Yep. 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 Is that around in VR? Cause that would be really dope. You know, no, I'd be surprised if someone didn't VR mod it. <gasps> you just reminded me. I have to download that. Remind me when we're done. They just released a VR mod. It's free for Half-Life 2. I got to go download it. So, okay. I have to play Half-Life 2 in VR. Okay. Anyway, uh, yeah. So a lot of fun games. Uh, Roller Coaster Tycoon 3, for instance, was made by Chris Sawyer. Chris Sawyer and the Roller Coaster Tycoon series we covered in a previous episode. If you'd like to check that out alongside many of our other episodes, you can do so by going back to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Also on our website at Memory Card Lane, you can find show notes. I post all the links to where I get my information if you want to read up more on everything. You can find a calendar that shows you upcoming episodes if you'd like to see uh, and plan your weeks around what we're going to schedule next. There's our biography. There's also a link to our Discord if you'd like to join our Discord and come say hi. So uh, lastly, there's plugs to our social media. I'm on various platforms as David is wrong. And Rob, how can people find you? I am on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. Awesome, 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 awesome. All right, well, that'll do it for Elite. Each week, uh, as we tell you at the top, we like to tell you the story of a game. Uh, Story of the game, story of the people who make the game. Uh, We like to point out where games get their inspirations from, and we like to note the legacy that games left behind. One of the best parts about telling these stories each week is the things that we learn, because the beauty of teaching is we learn, too. So as part of acknowledging that, we like to go around and talk about our what we learned, our big takeaways. Important part of the conversation. So, Rob, what did you learn today? Uh, I think a better question is what didn't I learn? Jeez. Uh, it was a good one for you, huh? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it was really awesome to be able to see this game at its core and see kind of uh, how it all started with the Elite Series but, you know, it's not really what I learned. I think that as far as everything you taught me, uh, it would have to be just how much of David Braben has been an influence in in what I've done as a, since I've grown up. Because, I mean, Roller Coaster Tycoon is one of my big series. Same with Zoo Tycoon. Um, now Elite Dangerous has become one in Jurassic World Evolution. Those are two games that I put quite a bit amount of time into. And I've already got the sequel to Jurassic World Evolution. And although I haven't gotten into the Raspberry Pi as most of the things that I did in college was with the Arduino, the uh, Raspberry Pi is something that I've been wanting to get for a very long time and just haven't gotten to it yet. But uh, I know that I do plan on getting one and starting to work with those and learn how to program with those. And uh, it's just kind of crazy to know that he's not only someone that created a video game franchise that I love or multiple or helped had a part in them. Um, but to also have been a co-founder of a company that designs electronic learning tools that are something that I have a lot of interest in too. This guy seems like someone that I would get along with very well. And he did it under the radar. It's not like he is a household name, you know? No, not at all. I honestly, until today, I'd never even heard the name David Braben. It's just incredible because a lot of the things he's done has influenced a lot of what i how i've been through growing up well he 
founded the most successful development studio in the UK and has managed to work with a lot of a, a lot of people, you know, that that are also instrumental, you know, because like Roller Coaster Tycoon is Chris Sawyer, who is very influential, you know, and I'm not going to take away from Braben. Braben produced many of it, but, you know, he's had the head luxury of working with a lot of good people, too. Absolutely. What about yourself, Dave? What was your favorite thing? The Raspberry Pi. I didn't know that Braben was the co-founder and trustee of the Raspberry Pi Foundation. I'm, uh, as you know, I'm a fan of the microelectronics, the Arduino, and and I, I've dabbled with the Pi before. I'm a I'm a fan. I had no clue that he had a part in it. It is pretty freaking awesome. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, on that note, uh, before I take it out of here for this week, would you like to add anything to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I just want to take a quick moment to say thank you to everyone for listening. It means so much to us, even though I don't tell you enough. And, you know, having to listen to Dave's voice, I'm sure you don't want to hear him say thank you, but he's appreciative, too. I am, I guess. Sure. Yeah, see, there you go. He's he, he agreed. <laughs> All right, next week. So it's the title that didn't create, but it did popularize and define the real-time strategy genre. Uniquely set in an alternate history, Command and Conquer tells the story of a world war between the GDI Global Defense Initiative and the Brotherhood of Nod. It was one of the most successful PC games of its time, and next week, we're going to talk all about it. Rob, you a Command and Conquer fan? I have played Command and Conquer once or twice. Yeah, me too. I think we had a lot to talk about. So stick around, everyone. Join us next week as we conquer the airwaves on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Scoop up, ba da do da, boo do da, boo do bow, bow. Dogs are going crazy. Yeah, I noticed that, did you? Oh, well. <laughs>